Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. We'll hit the, hit the magic button. So cool. we've, we've got Dr. Dick, David Sanger from Eugene, Oregon. He is a ultra runner and cardiologist who is uh, uh, basically uh, adopted sort of not standard dietary practices. <laughs> so, <laughs> Dr. Sanger, thank you for coming on. Appreciate you joining right. us. Uh, sure. I think it's going to be a fascinating discussion. We, like, yeah. I, like I mentioned off, off camera, we've had a couple of the cardiologists on, but I mean, it's such yeah. important to get these, yeah. these different perspectives. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Uh, sure. Let's see. I, uh, I uh, went to college at Harvard and then I, uh, went to uh, medical school at Stanford, uh, and then I went out and did my internal medicine uh, training at Mount Sinai in New York City, and then I did my uh, cardiology. I did actually did one year of primary care uh, in between in New Jersey, and then I came back and I did my uh, cardiology training at Mount Sinai in New York, and uh, then I moved out here to Eugene, so I do uh, general invasive cardiology, so that means like I do pacemakers and angiograms and um, uh, transesophageal echo, stress testing, echocardiography, EKGs, all that stuff. Plus, I see a ton of patients in the office. So I'm, I'm really a clinician kind of workhorse cardiologist. Like I basically like I'm the guy that, you know, you see when you're having chest pain or arrhythmias or AFib or hypertension and all that stuff. Yeah, so you're dealing with, and by the way, I've heard of all those places you you went to school. Pretty pretty impressive uh, oh, list of you. list of list of stuff. So I mean, you know, uh, but um, you know, so obviously you're dealing with uh, you know what is the most common killer, and we hear this all the time. Cardiovascular disease is the most common killer yeah. for for everyone right. in, in in the U.S. And, and probably most of the planet, quite honestly. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Outside of third world country where they where they starve to death or have infections like we used to, right, you know, right. hundred years ago, and um, so. My goal in life is is not to die of a heart attack and, and to be healthy. And despite what right. people think I do with my diet, and I, I don't want to get sick. I mean, I've got nothing to do. Right. I assume you don't either. That's why you're out there right. exercising. Right. I assume exactly. you don't you don't smoke and you know all that type yeah. of stuff. So tell us about um, your personal sort of way you 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 maintain your health, and then we can talk about how how. You, you sure. integrate that into your practice and because and, and, sure. what, what we're going to talk about is is not the, the current, I wouldn't call it consensus, but the majority opinion. Sure. Yeah. So what I do personally is, uh, I mean, I've started running, I think I was running pretty casually. I wasn't like a uh, NCAA athlete or anything like that. I was just a casual runner. But then uh, I think I used running as a way to cope with stress and to... Uh, just be healthy and be stronger. And uh, uh, it's been kind of increasing as a, a part of my life as, as I've gotten more uh, 
busy and working and seeing patients. And I find that running is a really important uh, way to maintain uh, mental health. And, um, uh, and the stronger, I mean, you can't really take care of patients if you're not strong. If you're not you know, physically strong, it's going to be really hard to, uh, to take care of other people and to listen to them and to focus. Um, so that's the main benefits I get from running. Um, I can talk about like other uh, health related things for me personally. I mean, it's all connected, right? So I think um, I've noticed that uh, I, I used to be one of these doctors, like my partners, I see a lot of other cardiologists who, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, you know, uh, they're overweight and they're stressed out and they're tired and they don't get good sleep. And so I've kind of seen that and I've tried to model my, what I do after that. Um, I think one really important impact uh, on me that's really helped uh, is uh, Jason Fung uh, with his book about uh, the obesity code. I think discovering the power of, uh, of restricting carbs and then fasting is just absolutely, uh, I think it's great. I think it works out so well just because of, I think the main thing that fasting is great for, one thing is good is uh, something called decision fatigue. I mean, you probably know there, everyone has something where you're wondering, well, what do I do? You know, if you're a doctor constantly, you're walking by the nurse's station there in the hospital and there's a plate of cookies or there's a, you know, uh, somebody's brought in some candy or somebody's brought in and you want to, you know, uh, it's just so hard to decide what to do. And having being on a fasting program means you just don't have to think about it. It just makes life so much simpler. You just, you know, you're fasting, you're fasting. So I think that's a huge benefit. Uh, to me. And also in terms of uh, mental clarity, I think that the more, if you cut out carbs, you get more mental clarity and uh, uh, ability to concentrate and, uh, and uh, not be stressed out and not be reactive uh, to uh, stresses that occur. And um, I think fasting also helps with that. I don't know, does that answer your question? Kind of go off. No, I mean, that's great. That's a great part to, to start with. And I, and I do yeah. think that, uh, um, well, I, I'm not somebody that, you know, regularly fasts. I mean, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not in a situation where I need to, I'm, I'm, you know, as an athlete. Um, but I do find that infrequent meals, it, you know, yeah. it's, I guess it's, it's, it's kind of semantics. I mean, I, I like the term intermittent feasting. I just eat a big meal and then I don't eat again for, you know, 12, 14, 16 hours sometimes. Yeah. So that's basically I'm fasting, but I'm not, I'm not there yeah. with a stopwatch. And so yeah. that that's kind of how I, I kind of do it. And I do think there's some sort of natural rhythm to eating that, that should occur um, yeah. in our appetite. And again, if you're eating what I consider, you know, food you're designed to eat, then, then things work yeah. naturally. And I think that's right. But yeah. I think for some people out there, they're just morbidly obese that have, that are metabolic train wrecks. I mean, sometimes that enforced time windows is very, right. Exactly. It just helps them because they, they don't have that natural feedback and their, their system exactly. is kind of, their appetite has been kind exactly. of hacked and destroyed. And so I think there is some benefit for that, you know, particularly for, exactly. for certain situations. Exactly. Um, and you, I know you said you've eaten low carb. I know you told me that you're eating basically an 80% carnivore diet, you know, so yeah, talk much. to me about, because this is always, and I think we should just get into this because this is always a big, yeah, you know, sort sure. of a 400 pound yeah. gorilla is, oh my gosh, if I eat, more fat, if I eat saturated fat, my cholesterol is going to go up and I'm going to get a heart right. attack. And so right. what do you say right. to that sort of thing? And how do you yeah. deal with that? Well, there's a couple of things. That's a really good point. So the first thing is that it probably won't. Um, I mean, I have uh, the HDL is probably more important than LDL and triglycerides are really, really important. And uh, if you eat more saturated fat, you're 
and you cut out the carbs, then triglycerides come way down and HDL goes way up. And all the studies show that HDL and triglycerides are probably more impactful as a, a marker for risk than LDL per se. So, I mean, I've seen this in my patients all the time. I tell them to go on a super low carb and uh, don't worry about saturated fat. And I, I check their, I'm the one who's checking their cholesterol profiles after that. And what happens is typically their HDL goes way up and their, uh, their triglycerides go down and, uh, and they're fine. And I'm not seeing people dropping dead of heart attacks and I'm not, I'm just not seeing that. Um, so, I mean, it's complicated. The fact is that a lot of things will influence LDL cholesterol. Some of them are genetic. A lot of them don't have much to do with diet. When patients talk to me about, well, how do I reduce cholesterol in my diet? I mean, I always say that, you know what, your liver makes 2000 milligrams of cholesterol every day and one egg is about 200 milligrams. So why are we even talking about eggs? It doesn't make any sense, right? So um, yeah, that's kind of how I talk to my patients about it. David, one thing uh, I want to ask you about, since you see so many patients kind of directly and see their labs and all that stuff is, uh, you know, we've had uh, Dave Feldman on the show before, and I'm sure you're familiar kind of with some of his stuff where he'll have these folks come through and show him data and stuff that they've had from lab tests that uh, he calls it a lean mass hyper responder, where it's yeah. someone who they go on a high fat, low carb diet that has got a pretty big foundation in saturated fat, and they see their LDL shoot way up, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, yeah. enough to scare anyone who's going to read the conventional stuff. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think there's a lot of debate right now as to whether that should be a concern or not. Yeah. First, I kind of have two questions, I guess. One would be like, do you see that? And then the other one would be, when you do, do you advise that person to maybe swap some of that saturated fat out for monounsaturated fat to try to lower that LDL? Or is it more of a, is there more nuance than just kind of this I, or that? Yeah, I just don't. Yeah, I've seen it a couple of times, not very often. I think it's pretty rare. Um, I'll be honest, I don't really understand all of the mechanisms behind uh, cholesterol homeostasis in the body. I mean, it's really, the more you learn about it, the more you realize that it's complicated. Um, I think some of it's probably genetic. Uh, the, uh, these people, I mean, if you're in doubt, I mean, the one thing I always do for patients, if you're in doubt is get a calcium score. I mean, that's such a great test, right? Uh, that's Sean, you had your calcium score. you you broadcasted, you know, to everybody. I was, I thought that was awesome. I got my calcium score. I don't worry about it. I mean, if your calcium score is zero, then I'm really not that interested, uh, in what the LDL cholesterol is, you know? So, I mean, I look at the disease itself, not the risk factor for the disease. I would say cholesterol is a risk factor, but it's just a risk factor. It's not the only determinant factor. I mean, I see patients who come in with heart attacks who have not very high cholesterol. I mean, let's be honest, it's, it's scary. I mean, there are other things going on. There's insulin, there's triglycerides, there's blood pressure, there's, there's a hundred other factors that cause heart disease. So, um, and I see people who have cholesterol of, of two or 300 and they have calcium score of zero. So, you know, it's not, it's not a one-to-one -one correlation and that, that is hard for some people to understand, but it's, it's a fact. So one, one follow-up with that too, is that, you know, I've been reading some stuff about people just talking about the, like the, the CAC scans and stuff. And uh, one thing I saw was that it, can be a valuable tool, but it also doesn't necessarily highlight all potential atherosclerosis scenarios. 
is that, can you give us more info on that? Like how, how much can we glean from say like a cash score and what, yeah. what, what are some scenarios in which maybe a zero on that would still mean you have reason to be concerned about potential heart disease yeah. or something like that? Yeah, the, right. There's that thing about the, this the MESA study, which was a study of looking at long-term risk of a, a whole cohort of patients. And it found that uh, some plaques are not calcium and there's something called soft plaque and there is that is out there, but it's pretty rare. It's very unusual. If you're really concerned, I mean, the other, some, there's a group of cardiologists out there that advocate getting carotid intimal medial thickness, which is a scan, ultrasound scan of the carotids. And that'll tell you if you have soft plaque that might not be evident on a calcium score. You could do that if you're really concerned, if you have a high, very high risk factors or you have a strong family history and you, you want more reassurance. But I mean, we're talking about a pretty small minority of patients. I mean, the calcium score is pretty darn good at picking up uh, coronary disease, which is a good risk factor for atherosclerosis in general. Um, Joel Kahn is, is turning over in his, I don't know, grade, but he's, he's, he's probably pulling his hair right now if he's listening to this. Yeah. Um, let me ask yeah. you, we've got the, this new, new class of drugs, you know, called PCSK9 inhibitors, where you yeah, can I know put about, somebody's yeah. LDL cholesterol down to friggin' below 20 if you want it. Yeah. Do you right. have any concern with that sort of trend that we're, 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 we're blasting our cholesterol as low as possible? Is that concerning yeah. to you? Yeah, it is a little. Uh, I don't know. I don't think we have good long-term data. Um, some of the PCSK9 stuff, it reminds me of a, a solution looking for a problem to some extent. I mean, we're We've got this amazing drug that lowers, I mean, but on the other hand, look, I think for selected patients, uh, if they really are statin intolerant and um, there are people that uh, the LDL cholesterol really does seem to have a more toxic effect on. And I think there, uh, there's a lot of individual variability. I mean, as you know, Sean, as a doctor, I mean, every patient is different. I mean, you can't just globally apply uh, these, uh, these um, frameworks to uh, that are designed for population-based studies to individual patients. Uh, a lot of it's like trying to jam a square peg into a round hole. And uh, so with PCSK9, I mean, gosh, they're expensive, they're injectable, you have to keep them in the refrigerator. Yeah, I mean, they're not, uh, they're not the be-all and end-all. And, and I don't know what happens if your LDL cholesterol gets down to 20. I don't know. I don't think we have really good data. Um, have I used PCSK9s? I've used them once or twice in a couple of people, you know, but I, you know, I agree with you. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, you know, again, there's unintended consequences and I know we have this sort of, you know, you know, cardiovascular disease is number one killer. So we, we do everything we can to can prevent that. But what happens if we sort of increase the, you know, neurodegenerative diseases? And I think there's some evidence out there that shows that, you know, things like ALS, you know, there, there's some God awful, ridiculous increase in ALS right. incidence on people taking certain medications to, to lower their cholesterol. Um, so, I mean, I, I, again, I think the problem, this is my view of the problem. I think, you know, there's a recent study that came out, you know, maybe I think it was maybe six months, a year ago, showing that 88% of Americans are metabolically unhealthy. And so I think when you take that population and you give them all high LDL, that probably is a bad combination. But if you start taking people out of that metabolically damaged risk pool, then LDL may not be as significant of a risk factor as we think it is. And I, I think we just don't know. I mean, it's very encouraging to see, I don't know if you've paid attention, but I'm starting to see a lot of actual coronary artery calcification scans where the plaque is actually regressing, which is something yeah. I think is very interesting. And yeah. we're seeing this in this low carbohydrate, ketogenic carnivore uh, right. population. Some people are right. supplementing with magnesium, potassium, uh, and right. uh, 
vitamin D. And, and so that is, I think, a very interesting um, uh, phenomenon. And, and, and I think we need to flush out this, this cohort and see, you know, who, who falls in this thing. You know, the, the, the sad truth is most Americans are fat and overweight and sick. And, and, and yes, right. maybe, maybe right. you can take a one-size-fits-all approach, but we're seeing people emerge from right. that group and it's, it's seeing a right. different, different variability. Um, right. What is your, uh, uh, let me ask you, so you said for there are some people that are susceptible, you know, and they when we do need to. And I, we had Brett Chair on. I'm not if you're, I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Brett Chair, yeah, he's a cardiologist. Yeah, really and when I him. asked him, what does he do with somebody that is, you know, obviously at risk for cardiovascular disease, and, and there's nobody better at risk than somebody who's just had a heart attack? I mean, you know, they're right. already set up for that. So how exactly. do we how do we deal with that population? And then which population? Like if you if you've got a patient, you're going to say I'm going to recommend this diet versus this diet. How do you yeah. stratify those people? Right. So a lot of it, again, comes back to insulin resistant. I mean, my typical patient who's come in with a heart attack, they're often diabetic or pre-diabetic um, and they're obese or, or, and, and they, have, they have a lot of insulin resistance that you, need, you want to overcome. So for those people, um, you know, I'm going to recommend trying to address their risk factors in terms of get rid of the insulin resistance, which is going to be getting rid of the processed carbohydrates. I mean, that's really the the focus. I think fasting is a good tool also that helps with that. Um, and uh, eating real food. I mean, I tell patients skip with the protein powders and the, the supplements and the, you know, they, they all want some quick fix. They want to add something into their diet, some, you know, some shake or some, you know, something they found on the internet. And I want to tell them just eat real, just try to eat a steak and try to eat some, you know, uh, don't worry about eating uh, 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 saturated fat and just try to stay you know, try to do that and try to get activity. I mean, exercise really does help. It is beneficial. Uh, that's what I tell my people with heart attacks. It's not as simple as just taking a pill. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I agree a hundred percent. I think, I think there's such power in food and I think we're seeing it. You know, more people are finding that out. Obviously, it's a it's an uphill battle because the food industry yeah. doesn't really want us to feed us food anymore. No, <laughs> right. And the pharmaceutical industry also doesn't want us to stop prescribing medications. I mean, I've seen as anecdotally, I see so many patients who they get so much better and they can stop taking a, a lot of medications if they can uh, adopt this kind of approach. I mean, I'm seeing people not like you know you guys, not not athletic people. I'm seeing patients who are in their 60s or 70s who are overweight or uh, have, you know, pre-diabetes or diabetes. And um, I've seen amazing results, not just in terms of like reducing their risk of a future heart attack, which, you know, it's hard to know what you're doing with that. But I see stuff like they can stop taking their blood pressure medicines uh, or they can uh, stop taking their antiarrhythmic drugs because they don't have AFib anymore. I mean, I see patients with atrial fibrillation that they, they lose weight and they, their rhythm goes back to normal. Yeah. I want to, let me delve into that. Cause that's an interesting topic um, about the, the cardiovascular, you know, the, uh, the arrhythmias and, and the different sure. electrical problems with the heart. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I've got this crazy idea, you know, obviously, you know, you know, the, the electrical system of the heart far better than I do. And I remember that was uh, when I, when I, when I was in medical school, remembering uh, renal right. physiology was one of the pain in the ass things you had to do. And then some of the cardiovascular physio physiology was very, was, was, was very, yeah. very, very different. I'm sure in a, in a 20 some years ago, since I learned it's got even more complex, but I, you know, I look at people with like peripheral neuropathy and we see diabetics yeah. and we see, you know, demyelination of the nerves and we see yeah. problems with that. And I, in my suspicion and that, and, and clearly that's probably related to diet or, you know, hyperglycemia or glycation. And I just wonder if those, you know, that, that, you know, the SA node, the Purkinje fibers, all yeah. that, maybe that's becoming glycated 
and that, or you know, demyelinated or something, and maybe that's yeah. contributing. And when you reverse that, maybe that's why that's getting better. I, do you have any thoughts on why arrhythmias would go away? Why AFib would go away? Yeah, well, AFib isn't quite related to the uh, uh, the nodal conduction system. It's more related to the uh, uh, left atrium and stretch receptors. We think we think there are these abnormal electrical potentials in the atria, especially in the left atrium, that get stretched when the uh, intracardiac pressure goes up. Uh, so basically, it's high pressure inside the heart that stretches the left atrium that makes the left atrium irritable that then causes these electrical potentials or increased automaticity is what we call it that cause atrial arrhythmias. So uh, they've done a lot of studies on this that if you force people to lose weight, then um, the AFib goes away or it gets a lot less frequent. Um, that's, you know, that's been documented uh, many times. And the reason why it's complicated, it might have to do with the, um, the uh, inflammation entailed by uh, fat. It might be that uh, epicardial fat or fat in the, in the body releases inflammatory cytokines that maybe that irritates the heart. We're not really sure. It could be that it's just the increased pressure from, say, sleep apnea, which is a huge risk factor for AFib, right? You all, we all know that sleep apnea is related to obesity and sleep apnea causes AFib. So maybe it's just we're getting rid of the sleep apnea because these people are sleeping better. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's complicated. But I have seen a lot of times that people adopt a low-carbohydrate diet and they they lose weight and all of a sudden, wow, they don't need their antiarrhythmic drug anymore. And, uh, and that's really quite inspiring. Yeah. I mean, I, that's I, I, I don't know how many people I've seen come off medication since I've been just kind of doing this crazy, you know, talking about yeah. eating, eating, eating yeah. a bunch of meat. And, and it's just, it's remarkable. I mean, we did a survey. <clears throat> I did a survey of, you know, I got 10,000 responses in, in 24 hours. And I mean, it was like something like 70% of the people had been doing it from any length of time. Some of them were only been doing it for a couple of weeks. 70% right. right. of those people either eliminated all their meds or significantly cut back. And I think that's just, right. I mean, that's obviously, you know, I mean, it's not going to make Pfizer happy. It's not going to make no. uh, Novartis no. happy with right. that. So, exactly. you know, I mean that, but that's, yeah. that's the truth of the matter. And it's unfortunately, yeah. you know, there's there, you know, for, for some people to win, the other people have to lose. It's, it's, you know, and, and the people that there's people that don't want that to happen. I, I'm, right. I'm, I'm very sad. I mean, I've gone to taking, you know, unfortunately, I'm sad to have to say this, but I, I consider our healthcare system basically a disease management industry. And I mean, it really, exactly. it really, yeah, it really is. And it's frustrating. And, and, you know, I just wonder if it is irrevocably uh, broken in that regard is, you know, I mean, we see, you know, the political climate where people are complaining about how to get more people access. And I'm saying, what are you giving them access to? And right. maybe, maybe yeah. we need to, cause you know, I mean, we know prevention works. We know that we, right. we know the answer is let's not have so many damn sick people. And right. the question is, can we address that in the current climate in the current medical system where yeah. it's all, pharmacy yeah. driven. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's a problem because people want a quick fix and they want something simple and they just want a pill, you know, uh, and they want to get, and it's just not that simple. And the problem, I mean, I also throw it back to patients a lot. I tell them, look, I mean, I, I'm going to give you tools that you can use. I want to empower patients. I mean, I want to take the shift, the power from away from the drug companies and the doctors and back to the patients. And uh, these are tools you can use is what I tell people, you know, you can, uh, or, Hey, I'll give you a pill, you, you know, I'll give you a lot of pills or, you know, it's really your, uh, it's kind of up to them. Uh, and a lot of people get it. A lot of people, they do feel like, you know, I'm really sick and tired of just throwing another pill at this problem. And, um, uh, 
expecting it to go away because it doesn't go away, right? I mean, pills, uh, you give medications and they have side effects. And then, then you take another medication to mitigate the side effects of the first medication, right? And that's kind of this snowballing effect that we see all the time. Um, but the problem is that, you know, people like us, we're really swimming upstream. I mean, that's the big problem is that, you know, I'll be, um, uh, I'll be preaching this to the patient and then they'll go see their primary care doctor or they'll see an endocrinologist who says, you know, completely the opposite. And uh, it's really hard without a, a unified approach in the, in the medical community uh, to, to really make a difference. It, it can be very frustrating. It's really difficult. I agree with you. This episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by Auto Wild Grill. Sean, you've made some good use of Auto Wild's grills. What has your experience been so far? Yeah, Zach, man, I use that thing for just about every steak I cook now. I've gotten so spoiled by it. You know, if I can't cook on that grill at home, I really find that I don't like the steaks as much. It's kind of funny. I become a snob with the grill. I use it pretty much for everything. It's, you know, it's, it's super fast. I mean, it's, it's, it just puts that perfect sear on there. It makes the steaks taste a lot better, a lot juicier, a lot more flavorful. And so it is clearly my favorite way to make steaks at home. Awesome. No, that's great. And I think it, it looks like on their website too, that it's a pretty uh, space efficient unit. It doesn't take up as much room as a normal grill might. Yeah, it's, 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 it's pretty compact. It's solidly built. Great. Yeah. And it actually looks like it comes in a couple different features. You can get an auto light, which is fewer features, but is also a bit cheaper. At the moment, you can get a holiday discount where they're selling their grills for $200 off. And then also, if you throw in the promo code HPO, people can save another $100. So that's a total of $300 in savings. So head over to autogrills.com. That's O-T-T-O-G-R-I-L-L-S.com. Throw in the promo code HPO to get your discounts. All right, now back to the show. David, one thing, one thing we've talked about kind of in the past when it comes to that sort of thing is where, where, you know, a patient comes into a doctor or a specialist and they get one message and they go to another one, they get the exact opposite message, uh, is that kind of confusion where I think ultimately a lot of times then people will kind of throw their hands and be like, well, nobody knows, therefore I'll just go doing what I want to do or I'll go on the internet and start, you know, searching for my own solution since no one seems exactly. to have it for me. Yeah. Is there, you know, one thing we've talked about in some of the other episodes is it seems to me and, and I'm not an expert by any means, but it seems to me like the way to fail is to set up a one approach system where it's like the government comes in and says, here's your dietary guidelines. This is what you should follow. If you deviate from this, you're deviating from the standard care of practice from a nutritional standpoint. And therefore you are kind of the, you know, the black swan or the, you know, the, it, right. it, would there be, any use or what are your thoughts, I guess, on an idea of say, like, let's put our heads together and find out three, four, five, like solid dietary approaches that we've seen a lot of research produce good results on. Uh, and then have like more of a, like a smorgasbord of options for these patients to pick from, as opposed to saying like, you have to go this way or you're doomed. Right. Right. Yeah. That's a really good point. I like that idea. I mean, it would be good. I, I think it would be uh, important to try to give people more options and make less confusion. Uh, there, there's a lot of noise out there and it's really hard to get the, the signal through the noise. Um, yeah, it's, it's a really, it's a really tough, uh, 
it's it's hard when you have these guidelines that come out there and they they say something and then i mean i had this just like yesterday and day before i've been seeing all these patients and i say i give them my uh recommendations which is basically what you're uh describing a you know very low carbohydrate and carnivore-ish diet and uh they're confused and they say but wait my you know i i mean i i'll tell you a good story i have a patient who uh i got them on this diet and uh their A1C went down from like 11 to six and their cholesterol went in half and their blood pressure went down and they stopped their medications. And uh, their endocrinologist uh, put in the note said that uh, I'm killing them because they're eating meat. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, what can I do? I mean, it's, it's tough. It's really hard. Uh, but I mean, I think uh, I, all I can do is just keep going back to you know, the, the power, I'm trying to put the power back in the patient's hands and uh, trying to go back to nature as much as possible. I mean, uh, I don't think that our ancestors were running around eating uh, tofu or um, bagels or, you know, I mean, and, and I just try to keep coming back to that with patients. And I think that's very persuasive. I think the, uh, uh, the argument of just eat real food, um, that, that does persuade people and it's hard to argue against that. Yeah, I, mean, I was going to ask you, I was going to wonder what, you know, what the climate is around, you know, because obviously you probably are in the minority. Are you in a, are you in a group practice? Do you have other cardiologists yeah. that you talk yeah. about and are they, they think yeah. you're just the, the crazy wacko guy or is there, yeah. is there some degree of, <laughs> is there no. some, some degree where they kind of see where you're doing and seeing the, the results you're getting? I think, yeah. I mean, I think I'm getting some, uh, impact, uh, slowly. Uh, I think the, um, uh, the nurses uh, and the medical assistants see what I'm doing and they're, they've paid attention. Uh, they, we get phone calls from patients who are like, can I stop taking my medications now? My blood pressure is low. Can I stop taking my statin now? My cholesterol has come down and I'm feeling great. You know, so I think that that's something right there in the, in the uh, field that we see. Um, and uh, I think slowly it's, uh, it's making an impact, but it's hard. I mean, it's definitely, like you said, it's, uh, it's swimming upstream. Uh, uh, it's uh, it's hard for people to change, and uh, uh, it's hard to go against uh, uh, what's been the convention for a long time. Uh, but I think we're getting there. I'm optimistic. I think eventually uh, things are moving in the right direction. I'm just gonna, um, you know, when you like, obviously you're 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 if you're, you're cardio, I'm sure you're very busy. I'm if you're doing if you're doing you know if you're doing interventional cardiology and you're you know you're 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 putting in you're doing angiogra angiograms and pacemakers yeah. and all that stuff. You I know what it's like. You're you're just you're running you're running all day long. You're fast. You know your yeah. clinic. You're seeing busy, lots yeah. and lots of patients. You yeah. don't have time to sit there and right. spend an hour with a patient going on a lifestyle. So what are you doing? How are you getting that message out to your patients? That's a really good question. Yeah, that, I find that super frustrating because um, they come in and they're, you know, uh, 250, 300 pounds and they're on a bunch of meds and uh, I'm here to see them for their chest pain. And of course, they're shorter breath. I mean, they're 300 pounds, they're shorter breath. So, I mean, and, and how much time do I have? And I've got to see 18 patients in a day. And, uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's a challenge. I think what I try to do is... Um, I point them in the right direction. I mean, I, I try to point them in the right direction. I have a handout. I give them instructions. I try to talk about blame and shame. I think that's a really important thing. People with obesity, um, and a lot of them feel like uh, they feel guilty and they feel ashamed. And uh, our society puts a lot of um, 
a lot of that on people and they feel like it's because they, they, you know, they're lazy and they eat too much. And they all, they all say the same thing to me. I say, what do you think you need to do? And they say, um, I just need to eat more salad <laughs> and I just need to exercise more. And I try to say, no, you know what? It's not you, it's not your fault. It, you know, it's that the system, the healthcare system is steered you in the wrong direction. And it's not the calories, it's the metabolism uh, that matters. And, uh, and, you know, by trying to take the blame away from patients and uh, try to uh, shift it back into their control. And uh, I, I think that that makes people, uh, you know, that can have a psychological impact that I'm hoping uh, will have a lasting impact beyond, you know, the limited amount of time that I have with people. But I have had people come back. I mean, I'll say, listen, here's, here's what I read. I saw somebody recently, I, I said, you know, I want you to go on this diet and uh, they said, I don't believe it. That's just crazy. And I said, listen, try it and come back, you know, try it for a month and we'll see. And, um, uh, and it's been, that's been really good. They come back and they're like, wow, I feel better. I'm not, you know, I can cut down on my beta blocker. I can uh, cut back on, on, you know, a lot of the medications. And uh, so that's pretty awesome. Let me ask, uh, because, and this is one thing, and, and just, I'm just going to put a plug here. We just started a new company called MeetRx, and it's basically a coaching service, you know, with, with other things that, that it's designed yeah. to take people like that. Because I know when you say, I, well, maybe I'll refer you to a nutritionist and you're going to get basically, you know, the USDA food pyramid right. exactly. shoved down their throat and you don't have a place to do that. And so we're trying right. to create a place for physicians or other healthcare providers. Hey, hey I don't have time to do this, but I know right. where to send you. So that, that, again, I'm just going to plug that for that. But I want right. to ask you, um, about, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, you, you know, you're limited on time, you know, what, uh, what is the uh, biggest uh, impediment? Uh, is it, is it, I mean, you talk about the patients having resistance to uh, tiny accepting this and we have this, I mean, well, no, this is what I want to ask. So as a provider, as a health, you know, I hate the, term, you know, we, you know, I know as a physician, we hate the term healthcare provider because it kind of, yeah. you know, kind of makes yeah. us generic, but right. um, you know, as, as a physician, as a doctor, as someone who spent their life doing this stuff, right. have you found that your uh, you get more satisfaction now with this sort of new tool in your tool belt rather than, than what you might've been trained with in medical school? I know for me, it's more rewarding, but I, I just like to hear. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing better than taking people off of medications. I mean, that's just uh, fantastic. Yeah, it's so satisfying to stop doing, you know, I mean, I, I, right, people shouldn't be sick in the first place. And when we're doing, as you said, it's disease management, right? So it's so much better to feel like people are getting better and they're leading down the right path and they, uh, and, and, and they, can, they can stop coming to see me or they can stop taking their medications that they don't need that invasive procedure. I mean, every time I... I do a cardioversion on somebody with AFib. I talk to them for a good like 15, 20 minutes about like, hey, let's, you know, let's try to do what we can do so that you won't have to keep getting cardioverted so that we can, uh, you know, stop this cycle. And because um, eventually, you know, all these cycles, they're kind of a spiral, right? I mean, you, you get with AFib, for example, we all know that you cardiovert somebody once and they come back and then you eventually they're just in chronic AFib. And then eventually, you know, they, everything just, you know, goes downward spiral. So what I'm trying to talk to people about is to interrupt that spiral and to take them on a different tra trajectory. Um, and, uh, you know, when it works, it really works. I, I have this one patient I'll remember that there's an, 
I swear to God, 80 year old lady who had AFib and hypertension. And um, she was uh, weighed like, it wasn't, it was like 250. And I got her on this, this diet. I mean, I, um, I got her on, got her to stop taking the, stop the bread, stop the, uh, the uh, cereal, stop the oatmeal, um, which by the way, I mean, that's a joke, right? I and mean, we always get these patients, like they're always shocked when I tell them to stop eating oatmeal. They're like, what? I thought that was good for you. So, um, uh, and, and this lady, after uh, about three, four months, she came back. She said, oh my God, nobody ever really talked to me. Nobody ever really told me what to do about this. And, uh, and now, you know, she's so happy. She feels so much better. So I, I always say, you know, it's never too late. It's, nobody's ever hopeless. Um, I, I really have a, I guess I'm a, just an uh, optimist. I always think that there's uh, hope uh, for every patient and uh, patients can always get better. And uh, uh, yeah, so I, I just, my, my main thing is I don't give up on people. And, uh, you know, uh, it doesn't always work, but when it works, it feels so good. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, and, and like I said, we, may, you know, and I think the point is we don't know for sure that it's going to work for every patient, but gosh, why not try it for a lot of them? My goodness, it's so, it's yeah. such a simple, simple and effective solution for so many people. And I, I've just, yeah. I mean, I've been shocked. You know, as you know, as a you know, as a procedural, well, cardiology, you guys are more into nutrition and diet and how that affects. But as an orthopedic guy, man, I mean, that was yeah. the last oh, thing sure. that That's we're taught thing. about. We're we're all about you know mechanics and angles and you know, right. screw, you know, putting in screws and and sawing bones right. and hammers and chisels and diet is like, yeah, it's a minor thing. But my goodness, I've been just incredibly impressed by the number of health conditions of every every single specialty yeah. that are that are dramatically. Absolutely dramatically altered by diet and you know i mean the sad thing is probably we could put about 80 percent of the physicians out of work you know yeah. if, if, oh, you're we, right. if we if we change our food policy and we we do that yeah. i mean and, and i don't know that yeah. that's a bad thing i mean I, you know no. I mean, obviously you know you want to make a living yeah. and you spent your life doing it but goodness yeah no i mean i totally agree with you i mean it's every time i have to do a, a procedure on a patient i feel like in a sense that's a failure uh on our on the healthcare systems part that we're having to get to this point where i have to do an angiogram or i have to uh do a a cardioversion or whatever on those patients had a stroke with their afib that was caused by obesity you know i mean it's it's a definitely yeah it's a failure of the healthcare system and a lot i mean on the other hand look i mean disease management is still important i mean if you're sick i i don't want to discount the the, the importance of, you know, acute management, right? If you're sick, you need to see a doctor. I don't want to discount that. Um, and you need to kind of get things stabilized before you can work on the, the lifestyle management part. But then, uh, yeah, long-term, you want to you wanna try to focus on underlying, you know, metabolic health. I always tell patients, you know, it's like um, calories are like the, uh, the waves on the surface of the ocean, but the uh, metabolism is like the underlying ocean current. And you move a whole lot more water with ocean current than you do with waves on the surface. And, uh, and you know, I mean, and try to get to the more deeper roots of the problem makes a lot more sense than to just uh, deal with the, the epiphenomena and the, the surface level. No, I think to the great analogy, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say to add to what you said, Sean, too, I think like the advantage of getting folks kind of more, more directly involved with their own like kind of health and fitness and well-being would open up an opportunity, I think, for the medical side of things to be a little more focused on like long-term approaches and actually sitting down with the patients who really need to be walked through things and spend significant time with them versus some of this kind of like 
well, everyone has got some form of metabolic disease now, so let's get them into the doctor and five, 10 minutes later, get them out with a prescription. Now it's yeah. like we reduce that down to a manageable number. So when those folks who actually really do need that help go in there and they yeah. can sit down with the doctor for an hour or two and really go over things with a fine tooth comb and find a solution that's going to work for, for them in their lifestyle. Right. A lot of that is, is based, is financial. I mean, to be honest, I don't get paid for spending an hour telling somebody mm -hmm. to, you know, quit smoking and stop eating the uh, junk food. I, I get paid for doing procedures and for doing tests. I mean, that's how our healthcare system is, is structured and it's, it's frustrating. So, I mean, I have to, you know, take a deep breath and say, look, I know I'm going to be, you know, potentially uh, getting fewer, you know, lower reimbursement on this patient uh, by, counseling them. But I mean, it's the right thing to do, right? And I think doctors, because they have an intimate, like a personal relationship to patient, it's really doctors who are on the front line and they're the ones responsible for this. It's not going to be the, the healthcare industry. It's not going to be the hospitals. It's not going to be the drug companies. It's going to be the doctors and the uh, healthcare providers that are, are talking to patients that are going to make any change if any change is going to happen. Yeah, David. I mean, that's that's. I mean, exactly. I mean, when I was doing, when I was, you know, actually practicing orthopedics. I mean, it was it was all about, you know, me 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 slamming, you know, rods into broken hips and and putting right. uh putting total knees and total shoulders in people, uh, right. and fixing ACLs, and, and that was what paid the bills. That's what pays the hospital bills. I mean, they right. don't care about they don't care. You know, okay. they, they you know you know cardiology, you know orthopedics, you know oncology where the money's made, and all these right. other you know kind of primary care, psychiatry, pediatrics, you're, you're, you're supporting those guys. And yeah, they don't want you to step back from that. And there's a big pressure to produce, to produce, produce, turn that hamster wheel quicker and quicker. Exactly. And, hospital. Exactly. and we've seen a tremendous growth of hospital administration and the physician, you know, numbers are pretty flat. And we just see more and more administrative costs and it's become more and more of a business. And it right. is very frustrating to step away from that. And, you know, I, I mean, you know, my, yeah. my experience is when, when I said, hey, I don't want to operate as much it was a very negative, negative experience from, from the hospital administration. And, and I don't know that you get that. I hope you don't get that. Uh, no, anyway, it's, not. Cause it's, it's not fun. I can tell you, but um, what I was going to say is that, uh, you know, we've got this, uh, you know, the analogy you talk about, you know, doctors aren't really the healthcare industry and that's true. And I think it's the same thing. I, and I may, I liken that to like cattle ranchers aren't the meat industry. I mean, there's, right. you know, that's a good that, analogy. Yeah, yeah, there's there's guys at that are doing that on the ground, yeah. boots on the ground, the soldiers, right. the the the, the, right. the people. These are the guys that are trying to do the right thing, but we're in a system that is just wrong. And sometimes, and like I said, you know, my 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 answer was I'm just going to step outside that system and, and and make my own game, and 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 then right. hopefully and hopefully the market right. will go where where they get the best results. And at the end of the right. day, we want we you know as a physician, you know, we take a Hippocratic oath. We we want to do the best we can for our patients. And yeah. Many of us are seeing that, hey, maybe, maybe the fact that I'm out here, you know, you know, standing you at 2 a.m. in the morning uh, is not the best thing that could have been done for you. Maybe we should have avoided this whole thing in the first place. Maybe we can get some teeth behind this prevention stuff. I mean, my goodness, you know, I mean, if, if, if we can just, you know, get enough, enough doctors on board to say, hey, yeah. because it's frustrating. I mean, as a physician, you know, you don't talk about patients are frustrated being handed pill after pill after pill and going to see right. this specialist and that specialist right. and adjusting right. the meds. It's just as frustrating for the physicians to be having to do that. You know, I, I just right. exactly. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. That's, that's the thing. I mean, it's really, I mean, our system is, is broken and it's designed to the incentives are designed in the wrong way. And, you know, maybe we need to, you know, think about uh, changing the system to incentivize health instead of incentivizing 
procedures for diseases. I mean, that's the problem. I mean, you know, there's been some movement in that direction in some ways, but, but it's really hard. It's, it's, we're, it's a problem. Yeah, I mean, you know, maybe it's a just dip, different term. And instead of calling it the healthcare system, call it the disease system, and then have a separate health system. You know, right? Exactly, exactly. But it's also it's the overall environment, right? I mean, we live in this kind of toxic environment where uh, people are are driving and they ne- they don't get out of their car. They don't have a, a they they don't have a culture that emphasizes uh, physical activity and exercise. And it's just so easy to. Uh, you know, just uh, stay glued to your screen and, and, and not go outside and not, you know, interact with the world and not, you know, I mean, that's, it's all this kind of like a, what I call a toxic environment that, that leads to it. So I'm not sure it's even completely the healthcare system uh, is, is at blame there. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, there, there's there, the whole entire, our whole, whole, whole system of food production, right. you know, the way we work, the way we, you know, right. we, we hover in these little cubicles, all that stuff is probably exactly. sort of yeah. not particularly uh, contributing to, to robust health. Um, right. You know, when, let me ask you about your own, because I, we, I don't know that we, we touched much on this, but sure. were you ever at a point where your health was like, I'm not really healthy? And, and did you turn it around with diet? And what's, what's happened That's to you? That's a good question. Uh, I didn't really, uh, I don't think I was ever that unhealthy. I never had hypertension or, or diabetes or anything like that. But I, I would say that I was uh, moderately overweight and I was getting a lot of running injuries. Uh, so I was, uh, I had a, uh, a pelvic stress fracture uh, from running uh, too hard and having bad running mechanics and uh, probably being overweight. And uh, uh, then I, I, that was kind of a turning point for me. And then um, I looked really hard at the, uh, at the, uh, at the diet and uh, 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 people like Zach Bitter out there who are uh, practicing a low carb diet, I thought, well, let's see what happens with that. Let's see how hungry I am if I you know, uh, can I run for an hour? Zach, you always say, you know, the test of being uh, 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 fat adapted is can you run for an hour and not have a gel, right? I mean, that's that's your simple test. I thought that was a great test. Um, and once I got to that point, I'm like, wow, I'm faster and uh, I'm losing weight and I don't have all these pains anymore. I don't have these, uh, 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 you know, all these injuries. All the injuries are kind of gone, gone away. And uh, uh, I start like winning my age division uh, in uh, in hundred Ks and fifty uh, Ks races, and uh, uh, so yeah, I mean I have noticed that absolutely. Yeah, you know it is really interesting because like I think a lot of times when people will reach out to me because they're curious or they've been practicing kind of a keto or a high fat low carb approach to nutrition and they just want to kind of dial yeah. things in or at least bounce ideas off me. I think they assume after eight years of it, I've probably seen every mistake made <laughs> and part of most of them I've participated in. But, uh, it, you know, it is interesting because I, I think the thing that people oftentimes get hung up on the most is they'll get into the high fat, low carb approach or a keto approach to endurance. And the message early and often is we'll measure your blood ketones, find out if you're in ketosis. If you're in ketosis, then you know, that's where you want to be. And then people end up chasing blood ketones at, with as much fervor right. as they do PRs. Right. Right. <laughs> and that always baffles me because I'll, I'll tell yeah. folks, I'm like, hey, if I go out for a four hour or five hour long run and I'm just doing water and electrolytes and I feel smooth at that intensity that's required to nail that workout the way I want to, I don't care if my blood ketones say 0.1 millimoles or if they say five millimoles. Like the, exactly. da- or the info I'm looking for on race day is that if I need to go away a while without fuel and stay consistent and focused, I'll be able to do that. Right. And then 
And then once you kind of know that, that you're quote unquote fat adapted enough, uh, then you can start maybe playing around with using some strategic carbohydrate in some of those long runs and training sessions in order to really fine tune what strategy you're going to use on race day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I've, I've, I, that's what I've been following your uh, lead on that pretty much. Yeah. I don't, I think it's more of a functional approach, right? I mean, what matters is the function, not the number, right? You want to move mm -hmm. away from the lab value and the uh, a, a specific ketone thing. I mean, that's okay to get started, kind of get a rough mm -hmm. idea. Uh, but then once you're into it, then if you know that you can run, like, I mean, I'm doing that uh, all the time. I go run for a couple of hours and I don't need a gel. I mean, I'll do a 50K and I'll have my first gel at mile 15, you know, or something like that. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't need it. And when I do it, I don't need it from a nutritional standpoint. It's almost more like mentally, right? I mean, it kind of gives you a mental boost if you're uh, kind of having some brain fatigue from running so long. Uh, but I, I think you're right. I think really the, the key to getting fat adapted is to, is to feel strong and, and to feel good. Uh, and who cares what the, what the ketone number shows or what, you know, what uh, uh, these, these metrics are. Totally. I totally agree with you about that. David, let me ask you, uh, I'm going yeah. to keep shifting gears on you and <laughs> no. make you work here. Can you think of any situation like, you know, with, with regard to cardiovascular disease or a cardiovascular situation where you would say yeah. that's a complete contraindication to adopting a low carb or a higher fat approach? Is there any in your mind, any situation where that would oh, wow. be something you could say? That's really a good question. Um, no. I mean, I have people who are really sick. I want to say, I mean, I know I don't know if this comes within the rubric of your podcast, but I have patients who have heart failure and really bad heart failure and who have um, uh, really severe uh, heart disease. And um, I'm putting them all on a, a super low carb diet. I mean, I, I, that's that's kind of a no brainer. I don't see any I've never seen anything bad happen with cutting out the I mean, I consider as I always tell patients, you know, whole wheat bread is junk food. Don't tell me it isn't. And uh, you know, uh, Cheerios is junk food. It's the same as uh, any other junk food. So uh, you can't tell me that stopping junk food is going to be dangerous or bad for you. Now, fasting is a little different. I mean, I'm a little more nervous about fasting in somebody who's sick, you know. Uh, so I always tell people who are uh, fragile, like if they're on insulin or they have heart failure or they, uh, you know, they're, they're, they've got a lot of medical problems or on oxygen. I mean, those people maybe fasting isn't such a great idea right away. You know, maybe for those people just cut out the carbs and then see how they feel. Uh, so, I mean, fasting, I think of that as a little more advanced, but certainly cutting out the, uh, the junk food. And people are just shocked when I tell them that, you know, oatmeal and whole wheat bread is junk food. I mean, that's just the, uh, you know, and I, and I think if it, that is just such a huge contribution, if we can just, as doctors, if we can just tell people that it's okay to not have these uh, processed junk carbohydrates and that they're not going to have heart disease if they eat more steak. Um, if we can just get that message across, I mean, that's kind of like the minimal basic message, uh, then that's huge. We've made a huge impact right there. Now for a word from our sponsors. All right, folks, this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox offers you convenience by delivering your meat right to your door with free shipping. They also offer quality by having options such as 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef, heritage-breed pork, and free-range chicken. They also offer value with their goal to make clean meat accessible to as many people as possible by partnering with a collective of small farms. 
they are able to deliver you the best products for less than $6 per meal. They often run promos on their website for subscribers to get things like free pork or free bacon. If you enter promo code HPO at checkout, you can also knock an additional $20 off your first subscription. So head over to butcherbox.com and place your first order. Now back to the show. Do you see, because when you, when you talk about kind of just your approach with a patient and you're going to, you know, suggest that they look into or, you know, look into a, like a, a very low or ketogenic lifestyle, yeah. are you noticing, because I'm really curious about this, because like when we talk about, especially we talk about like a clinical ketogenic diet where you're getting down to essentially no carbohydrates in your diet and even minimizing protein to a degree in some cases, right. do, you, right. do you find like, I should just back up a bit. You know, the big knock, I guess, is, well, that's not very adherable, adherable for most people to kind of partake in something that restrictive. And I'm yeah. kind of curious because, I mean, you're seeing folks who have been kind of slapped in the face more or less with like life-altering situations, especially if they've had like a severe heart attack. Yeah. What is the adherence like for folks like that versus maybe someone who's not quite yeah. in that dire straits? It is, it is hard. I think one, one key aspect is uh, side effects of medications. I mean, a lot of these sick people who've had a heart attack, we have them on five or six different drugs. And uh, that's a big motivator for them to change their lifestyle because they're shocked. I mean, they come in uh, having been on nothing and now they're on five, six pills. Um, I mean, that's the standard after a heart attack or especially if you have something like congestive heart failure, you're on a bunch of medicines. And so a lot of the adherence aspect, like of a low carb diet, I tell patients, I mean, the, the, the thing to look forward to is, you know, Hey, maybe we can get you off of this and this and this pill. Uh, and some people really hear that message because they don't like taking pills. Pills are expensive and they have side effects and, you know, they require a lot of monitoring and, you know, or at least go to lower doses. I mean, right. I mean, not everybody stops it completely, but, uh, there's something to be said for, uh, low doses of medications or fewer medications. So Yeah that really helps people. Uh, it's, it's, it, you do have their attention. They always say that like uh, a heart attack is a teachable moment, right? Uh, this is a teaching opportunity, right? And never, never let a good crisis go to waste, right? Somebody's got a crisis, you know, they're, they're, they're sick, they've got a problem. Then that's when their ears are open. And uh, that's when they're, a lot of times they're willing to adopt change and to, uh, and to uh, uh, think about their behaviors. And we see that with smoking. A lot of people quit smoking after their heart attack. I mean, that's what makes them finally quit smoking. But then to get back to what you said earlier about real strict ketogenic, I agree with you, it's, it's tough. I mean, if you're really gonna go to zero carbs, uh, that's, uh, I mean, some people can do that, um, it, but it's hard to sustain it. I think an easier thing to do, I mean, that comes back to fasting, right? I mean, fasting, the beauty of fasting is that it's so simple. Um, there's not a lot of complicated, there's no testing you have to do. There's nothing simpler than zero, right? So, mm -hmm. and there's nothing cheaper than zero, right? So uh, it's simple and cheap. So uh, for my people who have trouble understanding or things are complicated, then I say, hey, what about fasting? You know, uh, what about just restricting the time window in which you're eating? What about just having, a, you know, your first meal of the day at noon? Try that, see how that goes. And, you know, uh, then try to push it a little bit more after a few months, see how, see how you feel. And uh, a lot of people find amazing results with that in terms of blood pressure and uh, uh, sleep and energy level and stuff like that. What are you, um, are you seeing, um, you know, with, with dietary interventions, are you seeing improvement in cardiovascular function as to say, are you seeing 
uh, maybe improvements in like ejection fraction? Are you seeing improvements in, in con, uh, con, uh, congestive heart failure? Are you seeing yeah. improvements in even sort of things like coronary artery calcium scans? Have you seen any of those things occur? Uh, that's a really good question. Uh, you know, ejection fraction typically gets better, but uh, it's hard to know what caused it, right? I mean, I'm also giving them uh, you know, beta blockers like carvedilol that makes their ejection fraction better, or I'm giving them ACE inhibitors, or I'm giving them, you know, so it's hard to know what's causing what if I see something happen. I do see people with ejection fractions that get better. I see people, I don't do, re, you know, repeat calcium scores, but, uh, uh, and you can't prove a negative, right? You see somebody not come in with a heart attack, you don't know if you did that or, if, you know, you can't prove that, that what, what the cause was. But um, I, I, I think that, uh, these people do get, uh, they do realize improvements uh, as they adopt these, they get off of medications, they feel better, uh, their functions improve. Um, so yeah, I do see, I do see quite a bit of it. AFib is the one I see tons of. I mean, I see people have way less AFib and they can come off their medications. Yeah. So um, Dean Ornish famously published a study, I think around right 1990. And, you know, yeah. it was a lifestyle modification. It was yeah. a Low-fat yeah. diet that included some lean sources of animal proteins. The, the, sort of the plant-based vegan advocate doctors say this is the only study that's ever shown reversal of cardiovascular disease. And when I look yeah. at this study and I look at the you know the level of stenosis in these vessels, it was like I think it was the average was like this: the, the vessel was stenosed forty-one percent, and they reduced it down to thirty-eight percent, which to me is almost insignificant within measurement error. What do you say to people that quote that study to say that's the only thing that's proven to reverse cardiovascular disease? Yeah, that's a good one. I get that all the time. So Dean Ornish, first of all, uh, it's a small study. Second of all, the control group that he measured against uh, was not a fair control group, right? It was just like, basically, they did nothing. And then these people had huge uh, stress reduction. They had, they had uh, uh, classes about like meditation or mindfulness. They all quit smoking, right? Nobody talks about that. Dean Ornish made everybody quit smoking. I mean, I bet that was the whole effect. I bet you it was all about the, the smoking cessation. So, and then, you know, he did like 40 things to these people. And he took like, you know, I mean, it was like, what, 100 people. It wasn't a whole lot of people. And then he said it was all diet. I mean, that's just crazy. That's like, you know, uh, he basically like, you know, changed everything in, uh, uh, in, in them and then it pointed to one change as the causative factor, which doesn't make any sense scientifically. I mean, it's just such bad, bad science. Uh, and so, yeah, I have an easy, that's my easy answer to that. I mean, I, I look at the population-based stuff. I mean, I say to patients, hey, what about, you know, you want to talk about 100 Dean Ornish patients, let's talk about the thousands and thousands of, uh, of people around the world who do a low-carb diet and who are, you know, like the Inuit, right? Look at all the anthropology or look at our ancestors. Look at the humans that have been around for you know, hundreds of thousands of years, and they weren't eating oatmeal, and they weren't eating multi-grain bread, and they were hunter-gatherers. I mean, that's what our ancestors were doing, and they did pretty darn well. They weren't dropping dead of heart attacks, so. Yeah, I mean, one of the criticisms of that is, you know, they'll say, well, the Inuit, you know, their, their life expectancy is shorter than their, their fellow Canadians, and, you know, they're often looking at, it's kind of interesting, they're often looking at data from 1950s, where, when the Inuit had already been exposed right. to a Western diet, and right. the other thing that most people don't know, but Inuit have some of the highest smoking rates in the world. Exactly. I mean, they still right. smoke at a rate of 70%, and the average age with where they start is age eight. They start smoking cigarettes at age eight, and 70% right. of them right. smoke. And so to say that they right. have a higher rate of cardiovascular or a, a rate of cardiovascular disease compared exactly. to uh, their, 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 their sort of, uh, sort of yeah. 
peers out in Canada is kind of just silly because you can look at the Sami population, which is another indigenous population that's, you know, northern Scandinavia. And these people outlive all the rest of the Norwegians and Scandinavians out there. And they're and they're on basically a, right. you know, a reindeer diet, basically. Right. And they're reindeer. Exactly. That's what they live on. Yeah. So it's, it's exactly. a, a bit disingenuous to point that out, I think. I totally agree. Yeah, that's what I always tell people. And yeah, the Dean Ornish thing drives me crazy. That and the, just yesterday I had a patient uh, come to me with a, he had just seen the Game Changers movie. <laughs> <laughs> just like, I mean, it's just so easy to take this stuff apart. I mean, it's almost a joke. I mean, it's just, they're, they're so sloppy. There's such bad science. They, they distort, they, uh, they throw out anything that doesn't fit their hypothesis. Um, yeah, it's, it's, and then I always tell people, look, Hey, do what works. Right. I mean, you know, uh, they come to me and they're like, you know, they've been, doing this diet and they're weighing 300 pounds. I'm like, well, something's wrong, right? Maybe you need to rethink things, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. And the game changers has been interesting. <laughs> yeah. that's. Pretty I mean, you know, they did, the, they did this little, exp you know, I, I mean, it's funny. They, I mean, it's, it's obviously it's propaganda, but they do these experiments where they, you know, they, they take a, a blood sam sample and they spin, spin it down, you know, centrifuge the blood and they look at the serum, they look at the plasma and they say, well, it's more cloudy on these guys versus, uh, the other guy, I mean, it's, it's, it's just, I mean, obviously it's, it's just, com it's almost comedy in that, that, totally that situation. Ridiculous. You can do the same thing with an avocado if you, <laughs> right? Like if you do the, the fat blood cloudiness test thing that they were doing on that. Um, I mean, I guess the, the argument there, then they would be like, well, you should be following a vegan, low, a vegan low fat diet. But, um, you know, we're looking at snapshots versus consistency right. within that framework. Exactly. Exactly. Totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one thing you uh, you talked about was the high prevalence of people with diabetes and insulin resistance uh, in people that have cardiovascular disease. You know, there's a yeah. fellow by the name of Joseph Kraft. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He was a pathologist from the 70s. Yes. You know, he was looking at insulin levels on, on I think he looked at 14,000, 15,000 people, and he would see people that were, you know, not yet diabetic, and he would call it diabetes in situ. means you've already got it, but you just don't, you right. just keep not manifesting in your blood glucose. Right. And he said that, Anybody that has a heart attack or cardio or atherosclerotic heart disease uh, is basically, by definition, you know, essentially has diabetic pathophysiology. Would you do you think that's 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 probably a fair statement? I think that is a fair statement. Yeah, I mean, I think that these uh, insulin resistance is the is the key um, to uh, in in general. I mean, there's one more aspect that I don't think we've talked about enough is cortisol, right? Cortisol is important too, right? I mean, cortisol causes insulin resistance and that's probably the connection with stress, right? Stress levels raise cortisol. Cortisol causes insulin resistance. Uh, that's the whole connection with, uh, with mindfulness and with, uh, with our stressful lifestyle. People who come in, the type A people who come in with heart attacks, that also has something to do with it. But again, that comes back to insulin resistance, that people have uh, insulin resistance, which then causes triglycerides to go up, causes these glycosylation of uh, uh, you know of plaques like we talked about and, and and you're aware of that this this is what the, uh, the the problem is to a large extent I mean yeah absolutely I agree with you if you could be somebody made you the surgeon general or or even better the king of medicine <laughs> what would you do what would I do uh, well first of all I get rid of these crazy guidelines right I mean I'm so uh, alienated from our uh, professional groups like the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology, where they're 
I mean, I read their journals and I just want to tear my hair out uh, because they, they're, they're talking the, the same old food pyramid garbage and they're talking about eat more fruits and vegetables and everything's going to get better. But look, I mean, it's like we're banging our head against a wall, right? We've been trying this for how many years now and it doesn't work, right? Isn't that, you know, they say the definition of insanity is trying the same stupid thing over and over again and expecting a different result, right? So uh, I would at least want to have a little bit more of a uh, openness to opinion in our professional bodies that like, you know, so people who get the official word, so they're not confused. So patients who get the, you know, they, they, they look at the American College of Cardiology or the American Heart Association website, and they're not seeing something that's an ad for Cheerios. I mean, that, that would be, if I can just get that, I mean, that would be, uh, that would be huge. Uh, I don't think that's asking too much. And I think eventually, you know, people like Brett Cher and, you know, as we, we try to get, get into there and get them to change, um, eventually things will change, but, uh, but it's a struggle. It's really a struggle. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think that's great. I, cause I, 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 you know, I still get my CME and be, because, you know, I, I'm on this, what is it? Medscape. I, you know, get this, get some CME and, and I'll, because right. I've got an interest in this stuff, I'll do a, do a, a CME about, you know, cholesterol, and then I'll get all this cardiology CME, which I would have never been exposed to before, but it's right. kind of how these search engines, you know, these little, you know, these right. little direct things. Right. So I get all this stuff and I, and I read the cardiology guidelines and I'm just like, I'm like, I'm not a cardiologist, but I'm like, this seems like, not the best policy policy for me, but then, you know, people just point to these guidelines, you know, right. I'm sure you were aware of the, the president of the AHA, you know, American Heart Association. I mean, just recently last year, like 52 had a heart attack. And I, I mean, yeah. you know, right. I don't know what he's doing, but maybe he's practicing what he's preaching, but I mean, maybe that should be a wake up call for, for some yeah, right. of these people. Right. Yeah, no, it's, it, it drives me crazy. I mean, I see that all the time. I mean, it's just, I mean, in their defense, I mean, it's really hard to get out of, a rut, right? And especially if you've been doing something and you feel like you're doing the right thing, it's really hard to change. It's hard to be open to change. I mean, I had to go through that myself. I mean, I think I, uh, you know, I used to, uh, I'll be honest, you know, 15 years ago when I was starting in cardiology, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't know. And I was saying, oh, well, you know, try to reduce your calories and telling patients to uh, uh, have a low fat diet. And I was real, but look, I was able to look at what was happening and say, whoa, this isn't working, right? Uh, and I'm not helping people. And uh, I remember, I still remember this patient who came to me and said, you know what, I cut out the carbs, but my, I'm, I'm sorry, I cut out the fat, but my triglycerides went through the roof. What, what do you have to say to me? And I thought, wow, that's, that's really interesting. Maybe I need to learn from my patients instead of be uh, just uh, following guidelines and dictating to them, maybe I should listen to them. Uh, and I think that's what sparked uh, my change uh, about, it was about 15 years ago, 10 years ago when I, uh, I changed all that. Do you think it's possible for us to extricate ourselves from the sort of the grip that pharmacy has on, on the uh, healthcare system? Do you think that's, do you think that's, that, that's a realistic possibility? Yeah, I do. Uh, I think that um, these, uh, these drugs are, um, they have side effects and they're, uh, they can be toxic. Um, and, uh, they, they, uh, patients don't like that. And uh, again, it comes back to the doctor-patient relationship. And uh, that's the wedge that you can use to pry apart the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, you haven't talked about uh, SGLPT inhibitors. Do you know about that? They, they, these are these new hot new drugs in cardiology and diabetes, the, uh, uh, the uh, glyphosins, I'm probably mispronouncing it, uh, Jardians, and uh, these drugs that are uh, 
they basically make you urinate glucose. Do you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm aware of them. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Very hot and and so basically the way that they they work is they basically pharmaceutically put you on a, a, a they they push you towards ketosis with drugs, right? Mm -hmm. So this almost proves our hypothesis, right? It forces patients to it forces the kidney to uh, excrete glucose. That's how they work. Um, and um, by doing that, it's a really good treatment for diabetes and for heart failure. I mean, they found it's actually probably even better for heart failure than for diabetes. It's really good for preventing heart attacks. It's fantastic. Uh, but of course, it has side effects, right? There's all this stuff about it. It causes uh, fungal infections in the bladder and kidney, and there are people who have had limb loss and all, these, all this stuff. So, I mean, you know, I, uh, I want to say to people, do you want a drug that might make you really sick and causes you to uh, lose the carbs or do you want to just stop eating the carbs? <laughs> I was just going to ask you what are the side effects of that drug and is it because that's too good to be true. There's got to be some, some negative consequence for that route. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a little bit, uh, it's a little crazy. I mean, to be taking a drug that induces something that you could get yourself from just you know, changing your lifestyle. I mean, that seems wrong to me. Um, but I mean, that's, that's the way I think about things. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, the, the, the you know, the, the side effects, you know, I, I saw about that, you know, the fungal infections on your, you know, on your private parts, right. it doesn't sound particularly yeah. fun. Sound um, like and, and it's just a thing. And I mean, some people will be like, you know, as long as I can keep shoving Oreos in my mouth, I'll take this pill. And, right. and, and it, that's, that's, you know, that, that's another issue. That's the food system. You know, that's, that's, uh, right. you know, this is highly refined, highly palatable engineered food that's designed to, you know, basically hook us on it. And it's, it's, right. it's almost like, I mean, it is, it's literally like taking, taking a drug addict off of a drug to get them off right. the stuff. And the one thing I've seen, you know, with a, a carnivorous, carnivorous approach is it probably is the most effective way to get people over that sort of, you know, if you want to call it an addiction, that that's been, uh, you know, unique about that, which I think is very helpful. Exactly. That's the beauty of uh, an elimination diet like that, like going carnivore that really does get you out of the, out of the rut, out of this like addiction. I mean, I've just thought of what you said about our healthcare system. I mean, how you could change things. You know, I get paid a little bit by Medicare for selling somebody to quit smoking, which is great. I mean, that's, that's, they should, right? I get a little extra for spending five minutes in my visit to counsel them about smoking cessation. And I do that really well. I'm really motivated. I mean, I really want somebody to quit smoking if they smoke. Uh, but I don't get paid a dime for counseling them about nutrition. I get nothing. In fact, I lose money for doing it because it's wasting my time. So the one thing I could do if you want to make a change in the healthcare system is please allow me to you know, uh, charge for that. Give me a little bit extra. Give me something uh, to incentivize uh, me to talk to them about uh, about the nutrition and diet. Yeah, I mean, you think about it. I mean, this is why people go to the doctor to get healthier. And if you're doing something that, in my view, is one of the most powerful ways to get people off medication to really truly address their their the, the, the you know the the root cause of the of the illness, to you know actually make them healthier, to create health. And you right. get paid zero for it. I mean, this is just incredibly screwed yeah. up priorities. And and my right. goodness, and like I said, it's it's just it's insane right. that we don't we don't reimburse people for that. We put no teeth right. into prevention. It's all lip service. I mean, you know, like I said, right. if you want if, if we were serious about that, they would pay physicians for that. And people would gladly pay for that. I mean, it's you know, it's it's kind of like 
Um, you know, goodness, I mean, people are like, yeah, we're happy to pay you a lot of money if you if you cut people open and slap in new joints or, or, or you know, right. run, run a, right. uh, you know, a catheter up their, up their vessel. But right. God forbid you right. get them healthy and, and expect to, to, to be remunerated right. for that. I mean, it's crazy. Exactly. Yeah. But I mean, I look, I have had success. I mean, I have, I've had a few patients come and see me, uh, switch to me from other cardiologists because they're like, I really want to hear what you have to say. Uh, and I've heard that you, you know, you have uh, something to teach me about, about diet. And, uh, and I have had a few, I've had quite a few actually over the years, uh, patients who've, uh, who've come, uh, come down and, and they want to stay healthy. So, I mean, I think that's, uh, that's very inspiring. That always makes me happy. And, uh, you know, for me, if I can, I tell patients, look, I mean, let's try instead of, you know, uh, doing this procedure and sending you for this stress test and, and uh, putting you on a bunch of pills, let's like try this first and then come back and see me in a month and we'll see how you're doing. And then we'll talk, you know, and if you couldn't do it, then fine, we'll, we'll talk about getting a stress test. Do you see any uh, like cautions? You know, I mean, because there, there's a lot of sick people out there. They're on multiple meds or on, you know, three or four hypertensive meds. You might have them on an arrhythmia. You may have on, on a inotrope or something like that. Do you, when you switch their diet, is there any concern you have? It's like, hey, man, we need to watch this real careful just for people that might be doing this on their own that, that have these conditions that are hearing this. Is there, is there concerns you have yeah. where they may have to worry about certain things happening when they change their diet from high-carb right. junk food to steak and eggs right. or something like that. Right. That's a, that's a good question. Um, I wouldn't let any, nobody should stop taking medications without checking with a doctor. Right. So don't stop anything. Um, the, uh, no, I don't worry about somebody having a heart attack by eating steak and eggs. I, mean, I tell patients, look, that's what I'm eating all the time. And I think I'm pretty healthy. Um, but uh, I worry a little bit about, like I said, the really frail people uh, who are on insulin. Insulin scares me a little bit because you can get hypoglycemia and uh, those people can be really sick. So, uh, and the people with like heart failure and low blood pressure, that scares me. Uh, but I don't worry about diet. You know, I worry about the underlying disease and uh, I worry a little bit about if they're fasting. Like I said, fasting scares me a little bit in those fragile patients. Um, but I'm not worried about, you know, nobody is ever going to, I've never seen somebody have a heart attack from, you know, stopping the junk food. I don't see how that's going to make any, anything any worse. Um, you know, uh, that's, that's kind of a no brainer for me. Yeah. That's great stuff. Zach, anything else? I mean, it's been such a good conversation. I'll tell you what, it brings me great, warms my heart to see more and more physicians that are. <laughs> that are embracing this. And I, I do think it's, I, I'm optimistic. I know it's a long uphill battle, but I think as, as, as this message gets out, as more of us, you know, see that and, 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 you know, it's really, it's really, it really puts the fun back into what you do. I think, cause there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of administrative coding business stuff. That's just, you know, nobody wants to do that. Right. It's like, this is not the fun part. Right. That's not why I want to be a doctor. And no, this, puts, this sorts of puts the fun back in it. Thank you exactly, so much. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's so inspiring if you have people that you can actually make a difference and you can uh, uh, get them off their medicines and, uh, 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 you know, get them back into, uh, you know, m movement, get them, get them off the couch, get them walking. I mean, that's just, it's so worth it. it, it yeah, absolutely. Yeah, David, thanks so much for, for taking some time to come on the show. Like Sean said, it's been, been great to kind of hear what you have to say and share your information with our, with our listeners. So, if you could let our listeners know like where the best place to find you, like website, social media handles, and anything like that, then uh, they can find you or, and we can also yeah. attach to the show notes. Yeah, I'm on, uh, I'm on Twitter and uh, I'm on Facebook. 
uh, I don't have a website yet, uh, but uh, I don't have a blog or anything at this point, but I do do Twitter. And uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I, I, I see patients. So. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking some time and coming on the show. Okay. Thank you very much. Hey folks, Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.